industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. My very special guest today is Daniel Jurgen, once described by the New York Times as America's most influential energy pundit. Mr. Jurgen is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and a respected authority on energy, international politics, and economics. He's vice chairman of IHS Market, one of the most one of the leading information research platforms in the world. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior trustee of the Brookings Institution, and has served on the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board under the last four presidential administrations. His latest book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Daniel Jurgen, thank you so much for joining us on Industry Focus. Thank you. So before we dive into to the book itself, I just want to ask about the title. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your book. The title of the book is The New Map. What do you mean by that phrase, the new map? What I meant is this new map of energy and geopolitics that have come together, that we've gone through a series of disruptions, uh, geopolitically, energy, and of course, COVID, and kind of what the new world looks like and to provide a guide through that. So uh, there are maps in the book, but it's basically the concept of the maps is also metaphorical about really a framework for thinking about how this new world works and looks. Absolutely. And one of those frameworks you talk about in the book is reaching the end of, of what you call the WTO consensus on international relations. What is that WTO consensus and how has that shaped geopolitics over the last, say, 20, 30 years? Well, this is a, a term that really occurred to me to describe what was the view that the, the chi- it was good that China connected with the world economy, good that it connected with the United States, good for China, good for the United States, good for the world, and would go forward. And that really, and it was, of course, I used WTO because when China entered the WTO in 2001 was the beginning of the super cycle in commodities and things really took off and, you know, the growth has been phenomenal. But uh, that's broken down now. And if, you know, I'm here in Washington and whether you talk to Democrats or Republicans, they're critical of China. They're not uh, people, any, you know, people are, are now looking on China as a strategic rival, a great power competitor, and the Chinese are looking at it the same way. So there's this growing cleavage. We see it with TikTok, we see it with Huawei, we see it in terms of military, we see it uh, in other factors. And this is, um, you know, this is a, you know, you have the two biggest economies in the world that are so interconnected that are now sort of also at odds. So it, it, it's really, this is, part of this new map, the new geopolitics that will have a big effect on the global economy and on global markets. Indeed, what one of these metaphors you use or, or kind of frameworks to, to discuss that this rise of China is this idea of the, the Thucydides trap uh, when you have a, a new power rising in the world, which may which historically has led to conflict uh, between the existing hegemon, in this case would be the United States. How is that Thucydides trap playing out with respect to United States-China relations today? Well, I think uh, it is there. China characterizes itself as a rising power. I think the U.S. sees China as trying to disrupt the international order and create its own international order. And China says we're trying to con- you know, con- contain them and appeals to Chinese nationalism. There's a great picture in the book of uh, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping just after he becomes leader, taking his Politburo over to a museum to stand in front of the century of humiliation and saying the century of humiliation is over. China is now resurgent. And so that's, you know, and there are many examples and of this kind of Thucydides trap. And one of them, of course, that anybody who studies history knows is uh, what happened before the First World War between the uh, British and Germany. And so 
uh, if you look where how military postures are changing, you know, we have to be alert to this and it's going to affect investors. I mean, you can just change in Hong Kong. What does that do to the investment world? Absolutely. I think one of the, the key parts of that powder keg between the U.S. and China that you discuss in the book is the South China Sea and in particular uh, the Malacca Strait. I, one thing I think was really revealing to this book is the importance of, of shipping lanes to, to international geopolitics. Can you talk about the importance of the South China Sea to China and into global trade at large? Right. So about a third of global trade passes through it. It's probably the most important trading body of water in the world. And, you know, we've developed these supply chains and they're so complex and people don't just take it for granted or at least did until about a year or a year and a half ago. And uh, but China has now has claimed uh, that the South China Sea actually belongs to it uh, and that it's actually Chinese territory. And uh, I have the story in the book about the, you know, the maps that go back to the 1930s that are now 90 years later at the center of international contention between the U.S. and China. It's amazing to think it's a century of these maps. Uh, and uh, it, for China, it's, it's the key waterway that for much of their trade and for their oil. China imports 75% of its oil and a very large part of it passes through that. And they're concerned that they call the Malacca Dilemma that narrow strait of water that leads into the South China Sea is the U.S. would block it if there is some confrontation over Taiwan. And there's always the risk of a confrontation over Taiwan. And so that's one of the reasons China has not only claimed the sea, but they've reclaimed 3,200 acres and have built uh, military air sort of stationary aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. So and we are now responding by sending freedom of uh, navigation uh, uh, fleets, ships, through that, and that is uh, creating between, uh, you know, this is, that's an area, I think it, you know, to go back to your basic question, it maybe is not only the most important body of water in terms of world trade, it may also be the most dangerous. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's this, this place where if there's ever going to be a conflict uh, between the U.S. and China, that appears to be the, the place where that would occur. Well, and, 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 and Nick, I describe in the book several instances where U.S. and Chinese ships came very close to a collision. What happens the day after an actual collision happens? Who calls who? Indeed. I want to move on. We'll come back to China here in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit now um, about U.S. shale. This is another changing dynamic in the global energy market. Over the last 10 years, U.S. shale production has rocketed to the U.S. to become the largest oil producer in the world, as well as becoming a significant player in LNG, liquefied natural gas. How has that affected geopolitics and the U.S.'s position uh, to negotiate uh, with, with other countries? Uh, the shale revolution has had big economic impacts of a positive nature for our economy. It's had a big impact on U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. position in the world of a positive kind. It's given the U.S. a flexibility in the world. We don't have to worry about being dependent on uh, large amounts of imported oil. And it's also enabled us to build uh, new relationships. I work closely with uh, the Indian government on energy issues. And I can see the fact that we are exporting oil and gas to them has become a whole new, very tangible part of the relationship uh, at, at, the, at the most senior levels. So there are a lot of benefits from it. And it's interesting, in the US, we you know people don't know it or don't take it for granted. But I'll tell you, go to other countries, uh, they see this as very significant and very important. Yeah, one of the other kind of frameworks you use in the book to talk about this transition, you describe a transition from what you call the brick era, that's Brazil, Russia, India, and China, to what is now the shale era. 
how has that changed di- the dynamics of the world? What, what is the distinction between those two eras? Well, I think it's that, that's kind of the first decade of the 21st century when you had the sort of super cycle of commodities. You'll remember that and uh, oil going to 134 dollars, whatever it was, uh, and it was really it was really that growth in the emerging markets led by China that was the kind of dominant motif, you know, almost for the world economy and certainly for uh, the you know the commodity markets, including oil. And that era really ended to, you had a slowing down of China and the other emerging markets. At the same time, you had the shale. It's an amazing story because, you know, the textbook said shale wasn't possible. And you had a few stubborn people like George Mitchell or Mark Papo said, well, we can do something here. And they made it happen. People didn't expect to happen. And then it became actually, to use a term normally used with tech, a really big disruptive technology because the U.S. we saw a growth in U.S. oil production uh, that at a speed that had never happened before in the history of the world. And the month before COVID sort of shut down and what I call in the new map created the economic dark age, uh, the U.S. reached 13 million barrels a day, several million barrels a day more than Saudi Arabia and Russia. I mean, that was really a historic achievement. And it was kind of stubborn entrepreneurs combined with technology who made it happen. Right. I mean, it really threw out the whole peak oil thesis out the window and was this massive deflationary innovation. Oftentimes we talk about uh, innovation opening up new opportunities. This really dropped prices in the market. What it also did, and you talk about this some in the book, is somewhat change the nature of relations between uh, the United States and Russia. Russia views the rise of U.S. oil and gas as a threat to its position in the world. Can, Can you expound on what this means for Russia? Sure. Well, I have an anecdote in the book. I don't use the first person, but it's it's me. I was in a meeting and I had the opportunity and it, uh, uh, Putin was together, Vladimir Putin with Angela Merkel. So I had the first question. And the question I was asking Putin is, what are you going to do to diversify your economy? What are you going to do reformers here? Not dependent as excessively as you are on oil. Accidentally, I mentioned the word shale and he erupted in anger and started shouting at me. And I'll tell you, being shouted at by Vladimir Putin in front of 3,000 people, not a great feeling, not a great experience. But what it told me is that he saw shale as, uh, as strengthening its US position and weakening Russia's position because it meant that there were competitors, for instance, in Europe, you can buy, countries can buy US LNG as opposed to just buying Russian gas. And so I think the Russians have come to see shale as an adjunct to US foreign policy. Uh, it, of course, it was shale that enabled the U.S., whether you like what Obama did, what Trump did, what Biden may or may not do about Iran. It, was, it gave us the flexibility to deal with Iran that we wouldn't have if we'd been importing 60 percent of our oil. So I think the Russians say, why are we giving up market share to, uh, to U.S. oil? But when the price collapsed and Donald Trump became the great broker of, um, of uh, restabilizing the market last April, uh, and was calling Putin all the time and calling the king all the time and calling the crown prince all the time and made a deal. I think the Russians at that point decided that they'd better get on board because if they didn't, uh, they, you know, their economy is pretty highly dependent on oil. They'd be in real trouble with oil uh, prices collapsing into negative territory. You bring up this this kind of grand deal between Russia, the U.S., o- OPEC, and we've seen this rise of, of you know, the so-called OPEC plus over the past couple of years, comprised of OPEC members plus Russia and some others in an effort to control global supply. Is this a suggestion that OPEC's, OPEC alone, their era of being able to control 
the oil market is starting to come to an end? Well, I think it has come to an end. I mean, it, uh, you know, OPEC is an association of countries who have very different interests, including two countries who are big enemies of each other, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I think when oil prices collapsed in, in 2014, it was because the Saudis said, hey, we're not going to cut back and make room for Russia. And the Russians at that point said, well, well, we're out of here. We're just going to go with the market. And then lo and behold, two years later, uh, they came around and created this OPEC plus, which is involves both OPEC countries and a number of non-OPEC countries. But the heart of it is the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia. And that came together. And so that that relationship is really key. But the way I see it now is really the world oil market is dominated by the big three, U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Russia. And that was what was demonstrated last uh, uh, April. And what those three countries decide to do is what really has decisive impact on the global market. You mentioned this big three, and I want to talk a little bit about Russia and China as well. This is a, a partnership that we've seen flourish over the past several years related directly to energy. How is energy driving relations between China and Russia? Uh, Nick, that's such an important question. And at a time when we tend to put sanctions on Russia, it just uh, accelerates the, the their getting together. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I was at a conference and uh, Putin was on the stage with Xi Jinping, the uh, president of China. And Putin apologized to him, saying, I'm sorry we stayed up so late talking. It was four o'clock in the morning, China time. And Xi Jinping said, oh, that's okay. We always have so much to talk about. I'm sure partly what they talk about is their problems and their enmity with the United States. Uh, but uh, that has become a, I won't go so far as to call it an alliance, but Russia didn't want to sell military weapons to China because they were afraid they would copy it and uh, steal the IP. But now they're doing it because they, that relationship is so important. And there was a, what you know, sometimes when you're writing a book, sometimes you see how things fit together that you don't see day to day. So at the same time that Donald Trump signed the sanctions on uh, this Nord Stream 2 pipeline that is to uh, $11 billion, three weeks away from being completed, that brings gas from uh, Russia to uh, Germany. Uh, and sort of stopped the activity there, put in suspended animation. Putin and Xi Jinping had this big tripart ceremony where they pulled the switch that started the flow of Russian natural gas through the power of Siberia pipeline to China. So that relationship, I think, has become, that is a really important relationship. And, you know, I find here in Washington, people say, well, how can we, you know, pull them apart? Well, I, you know, if we put sanctions on them, they're going to go together. And, and Putin... Uh, and Xi Jinping shares something else. They're both essentially presidents for life. One of the things you think about Putin actually just, just hit me the other day. If Biden becomes president, he will have been in power and dealt with five different US presidents. You know, you just sort of say, how does the world look to, to that guy? Yeah, so, so this is this is a question I've had. It's not on my notes, but but since, since you mentioned it, the, the president for life thing, I, I'll ask it now. Why is there such a... a so many countries that are their oil dominated economies, why are, do they tend to be ruled by uh, more autocratic governments? Uh, well, I think some of them it's because it goes back to, you know, the, the kings who set it up. Uh, you know, I mean, you can go through, well, we're a democratic, we're the largest producer and we have a democratic government. That's true. But, That's true. You know, we can look at Norway, we can, you know, we can find countries. But even if you look at Venezuela, it did have a democracy. And now it's, it's turned into one of the worst autocracies in the world that's imp imposing such pain on its people. I suppose one thing is that, you know, if when there's a lot of oil money there, you know, uh, there's what they call rent-seeking behavior where people want to get their hands on the oil money. And that 
you know, maybe leads to uh, the grab for power. But um, yeah, that um, there are probably more autocratic uh, major oil exporters and democratic major ex oil exporters. Yeah, I don't know why it ended up that way, but that's something I've always wondered about. It, it seems to be a, a disproportionate uh, a representation there. Kind of moving on, I want to talk about the energy transition. This is a, a buzzword that has really come to the fore uh, the past several years. However, you mentioned in the book, there's a lack of consensus about what the energy transition really looks like. What's your view on what a potential energy transition might look like and what factors might drive that transition? Well, certainly uh, an energy transition is happening. It means an evolution of our energy system. And maybe you can say it's been happening, you know, I mean, shale was part of a, you know, a transition, but generally people think of it as a transition to renewable energy resources and away from the uh, fossil fuels that currently supply 84% of world energy, 84%. Um, and uh, there's a question of timing. There's some who think, oh, we can do this by 2030. Uh, the Europeans and others are setting targets for 2050. Uh, I think it's gonna, something that's going to unfold over a long time. Uh, it's going to need more technology than we have today. And one important part of that technology will be carbon capture because we're going to need oil and natural gas for a long time. Uh, you know, even if, you know, by, even if by 2050, you know, a third of cars are electric vehicles, we'll still be, you know, using gasoline. So I think there are a lot of targets out there, how to achieve them. Uh, we're not going to do it with the current technology, but we're going to certainly move directionally uh, in, 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 in that direction. Sure. We've got, uh, in the past week or so, BP came out with these projections that that oil demand may have already peaked. This comes kind of in contrast to a decade ago, the peak oil supply thesis, the fact that we're out of supply and now the narrative has switched uh, to peak oil demand. What's your opinion on, on this, this idea that oil demand may have already peaked? Well, I think that uh, probably, you know, the BP people do very serious analysis. Others who do serious analysis think otherwise. I think we at IHS market look at it, I think differently. I think that they may be looking at it saying that the impact of COVID is going to be so great with uh, people really working at home now, that the office of the future will also be at home, uh, that there'll be less commuting and less jet travel and so forth. And I think that's probably what they're looking at. But I think the real question that will determine it is what happens to GDP when this is over? Are we going to have a feeble GDP and still have deep economic wounds because of let's look what's happened to small business? Or will we have a rebound? It's interesting. In China, it looks like they're having a pretty quick rebound. But of course, it's a different society and a, a different stage in how they've managed uh, to control the, the, the pandemic. Um, I would still think the feeling, at least I expressed and the reasons I lay out in the new map is that I still think it's probably more likely the early 2030s that we see a peak, a plateau, and then a you know, beginning of a decline rather than having it happen sooner. But as I say, it depends on the economies and it'll depend upon government policies. The Europeans are coming down really hard on the automobile companies to change their fleets. But you know, cars don't turn over overnight. The average car in America stays on the road for 12 years. So I think it's a, lo a longer process and that we're really gonna have a more mixed system uh, of, of energy in the future. And, and Nick, if I can just say, I mean, you have to look where we're starting. The U.S. gets 80% uh, of its energy, the U.S. alone, from, you know, from fossil fuels and less than 4% from wind and solar. So, you know, you don't make that shift in an economy that's a, you know, a 
$20 trillion economy or an $87 trillion world economy. You don't do that in a matter of five or 10 years. It's just too big. Absolutely. And one thing you mentioned in the book is that this won't be the first energy transition that the world has seen. We've seen transitions from, from wood to coal in the past and other uh, types of fuels. What does history tell us about what the pace of an energy transition might actually look like? Well, history says they take a long time. Uh, although people started using coal to replace wood in the Middle Ages in Britain because of the price, classic economic short supply, price went up. But I said actually that the first energy transition, the key moment was 1709 when a metal worker in Britain uh, named Abraham Darby figured out how to use coal to make better iron than, uh, than using wood. It took two centuries from then until coal became half of world energy supply. Oil was discovered in the United States in 1859. It wasn't until the 1960s that oil became the number one energy source in the world. So the message is it takes a long time. The reply to that, somebody might say, well, this is not the 19th century, folks. This is the 21st century. We have the technology. We have the money. We have the willpower. Uh, we have the ingenuity. And I think that's all true. But even look at wind and solar. Uh, those are Modern wind and solar are technologies that are 50 years old, 50 years old. So it was only 10 years ago that they really started to become economically competitive. So I think some things can happen fast. Look what digitalization has done. I mean, if we had had this pandemic 10 years ago, we probably wouldn't be able to do what we're doing today. So some things can happen fast and this has been accelerated. But generally I think that to turn an $87 trillion economy, lessons of history do say that it's complex. You don't just say it and make it happen. And uh, a lot of it will depend upon new technologies. Indeed, right? We're turning over an entire global supply chain. Obviously, tech driving the market today. But if you turn, if, if the energy infrastructure isn't there, then uh, that that's the the foundation on which our, our global economy. You need, you, need, you need something called electricity. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's the fundamental building block on which a lot of a lot of these uh, technologies are, are built. So a lot of the narrative that we see today around energy transition is really focused around, you know, the US, Western Europe, a lot of these developed nations. But what I'm, one issue I'm really glad you brought up in your book is, what does energy transition look like for the developing worlds? How, how is that different uh, than what we're going to see here in the US or in Western Europe, more developed economies? Well, I really felt it's very important to include that in the new map because it tends to be, you know, the European perspective is you're, you know, a really rich country and you can kind of, you have a lot of options uh, and you don't have a lot of really poor people. Uh, but, you know, the work I do in India uh, takes you in front of the fact that they have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who live in poverty, who live in villages, who burn uh, wood, animal waste, agricultural waste for in turn, for cooking. And the World Health Organization, which now of course is famous, uh, says that uh, indoor air pollution is the single biggest environmental health problem in the world, number one. And so for India, it's a question of how to get people out of the pre, you know, get them out of the middle ages basically. And for them, that means getting them into a world of commercial energy. And so natural gas, and India has a $60 billion plan to build up its natural gas distribution, get canisters of uh, propane to people so they can cook with that rather than cooking with that uh, with the waste product with all the health problems. So I think a country like India looks at this energy transition in a very different way. And for them, it's partly a transition from, you know, from you know, waste and wood to modern energy. 
China's interesting because China does everything at the same time. It has the largest, it has about half the solar capacity in the world, half the wind capacity, but it's also building three new coal-fired plants a month. So it's doing all of the above. And I have a quote in the, in the book from the Nigerian uh, petroleum minister, as he was saying, it's all great for these you know, Europeans to tell us what to do, but we have a lot of poor people and we have to get natural gas to them to improve the quality of life. So I think there really is a difference in viewpoint between let's say a Netherlands and a Germany and an India and a Nigeria versus an India and a Nigeria and other countries, developing countries. So one question I think about when we look at energy transition for, for developing countries is, is when we look at the internet, uh, you can look at China and they kind of skipped the desktop internet and went straight to mobile internet. Do you think there's potential for some of these developing countries to maybe skip some of the hydrocarbon economy and jump straight to renewables or, or is cost, that cost prohibitive? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think that um, they need distribution systems to be able to, you know, people talk about microgrids and other things and solar, but I think it is, I think it's, I think that's a very good question. I think it's, I think it's limited. I mean, it depends, you know, what kind of cars will they go for more efficient cars? Uh, uh, you know, but, you know, you have an electric problem having an electric car in a country where the electricity is off for several hours a day. It's not so helpful. You know, you need to be able to, you know, have reliable supplies. So, you know, will they be able to leapfrog? I think you'll see, I mean, India's going to put in wind and solar. So that will be part of it. In fact, you know, the original Indian wind company got started to provide uh, power to, comp- you know, factories that were being cut off because there wasn't enough power from the central generating authority. So, um, but, you know, you, you know, I think it's a good, you know, I'll reflect on the question is, can you kind of skip the landline, so to speak? Right. It will be interesting to see how, how that plays out. In any event, in, in a world where there are these narratives about peak oil demand, more, incur- more moves towards electric vehicles and that sort of thing, what is the future for oil dependent nations in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran? Well, uh, they are highly dependent, like 95% of the Iraqi government revenues come from oil and the Saudi economy is heavily dependent on oil. So I, I have a, one story about a country that has diversified and that's Abu Dhabi, which uh, you know, 20 years ago was basically GDP equals oil. Today, 60% of its GDP is non-oil, but they set out in a very concerted way to diversify. They also built up what is the second largest, uh, probably the second largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. So they're a big factor in global financial markets and a big player in that. But they're a small country and they set out in a determined way. I think it's a challenge. Saudi Arabia now has its vision 2030, which was to diversify. I think you find it's pretty hard to diversify a large economy that's dependent on oil because you, you have to worry about, you know, ability to do business, the role of entrepreneurs, uh, contract, you know, stability of contract, sanctity of contract and all, all those kind of things. And, you know, the sense of, of, of time as well. It was hard before. I think it's harder now in COVID. It's a lot harder in COVID. And I think that one thing that has been discovered that if you want to diversify your economy away from oil, actually it helps to have a lot of oil revenues. Right. It's the chicken and an egg, right? You need, you need yeah. the money to invest. Right. Um, so one question I have, too, is on, on the peak oil demand and this trend towards, you know, BPs and other example companies that are investing 
fewer dollars in, in exploration and production activities. That, that's particularly pronounced in Europe, but you're seeing other, other companies move that way as well. What do you think that what impact do you think that might have on oil prices? Because I can t- see two scenarios, right? Demand trends down over time, which reduces demand for oil and keeps prices low. However, if we don't invest cash in, in building new supply, it's possible that we're, we reach an undersupply situation. Well, right. And then prices go up and that affects demand too. So um, it's really striking to look at what the what the companies, basically they've been in a survival moment for them as other industries. This is a COVID crisis. And so the large independents have on average cut their budgets by 50% or more from where they were at the beginning of the year, the majors by 30%, and you just see one company after another cutting its budget. So, you know, if the past is a guide, that means that uh, if we have a decent economic recovery, demand goes up, markets will be tight, uh, you know, 2023, 2024, uh, because you, you haven't made the investment in 2020 or 2021. But for now, it's all about survival and preserving cash for these companies. So they have to deal with the here and now. So transitioning, you mentioned earlier some of the new technologies you talk about in the book, electric vehicles. There's really a triad of technologies you bring up in the book. So electric vehicles, autonomous driving, and ride hailing, and how they might impact energy demand. Why are these technologies so important to the future of energy? Well, I think, uh, you know, sometimes people think that, uh, Oil is just about cars and transportation. It isn't, it's a lot of other things as well, but certainly transportation is very much at the center of it. And so um, I have three chapters in the section I call Roadmap to the Future. Uh, No, I guess it's four, where I looked at uh, first, where did the EV come from? And I have this wonderful photograph of Thomas Edison standing next to his electric car around 1900 and Elon Musk standing next to his electric car uh, today. And you sort of wonder if Elon Musk is a reincarnation of Thomas Edison because Thomas Edison's electric car just didn't get going. Uh, And obviously uh, electric cars have gotten going and the automobile makers. So, and then the second one is about where did ride hailing come from? And wonderful story about uh, Uber that it started with a guy standing on a street corner being late for his date and you just couldn't get a taxi and there had to be another way to do this. And then autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. And so if you'd put them together, uh, you would say, I call it the new triad that you would get sort of what I call new companies, which you know would be talking about auto tech where software companies, giants would come together with transportation. And I even sort of speculate would instead of talking about big oil, oil would we talk about big mobility? Uh, that would be the, the future. But I think the disruptors i.e. ride hailing have been disrupted. Uh, And as I understand, the drive for uh, autonomous vehicles has been set back a couple of years, again, by uh, lack of access to resources and and investment. But, um, you know, it's possible that we could see, and this would obviously change it, you know, if people really give up on, you know, owning personal cars and you just have uh, cars, self-driving cars that show up when you want them, and you feel comfortable getting in them, which you won't while we're still worrying about COVID, uh, that uh, you know the business model for automobile industry, which really hasn't changed since Henry Ford's Model T rolled off the assembly line in the first decade of the 20th century, you know, then it could be a big change in a different kind of industry. So, you know, I, you know, it's interesting to think about this new giant industry that doesn't yet exist called big mobility. Absolutely, and there's these questions of of what role will 
traditional automakers play in, in this this new dynamic? What role will technology companies play? Do you have an opinion on what that looks like and, and what companies are left behind well, and which, which well, ones drive the future? Well, not yet, but I'll tell you what I do have. I just have a list. It's a, like a litany of the mergers, the partnerships, who's buying who, who's, you know, and, and how do you do it? And I, you know, I interviewed both, I talked to both Mary Barra from General Motors and Bill Ford for, for the book. And, uh, you know, I was struck by what Mary Barra said that when she bought this company called Cruise Automation, the challenge is how to give it the benefits of what GM could bring to bear, but on the other hand, not, you know, hug it too close so that you can continue to innovate uh, within, within, within that company. So, but it's, you know, if you, if you make a list of who's become partners with who, who's bought who, uh, who's working with who? It's quite a crisscross of everybody trying to be positioned for a future that you can't quite put your finger on. Yeah, it's amazing the number of partnerships we've seen in that space over the next couple of years. As you mentioned, as folks in the industry have realized the amount of capital that they'll need and have partnered up to try to to make that uh, possible. One thing you discuss in the book, and this comes back to the to the pace of energy transition, is, is what's driving this transition to electric vehicles. So in your opinion, to what extent is electric vehicle adoption being driven by, by government action versus consumer demand? Well, I think at this point, uh, there may be three elements. One is is brand, Tesla's a brand. You know, people wanna own a Tesla. It, it has a lot of significance for people. Uh, in general, we don't, haven't seen a large consumer pickup. I think that, um, I think government policy is a really big driver in the, on the one hand, putting more and more pressure on cars uh, internal combustion engines in terms of fuel economy. Uh, the Europeans are, you know, will have billions and billions of dollars of penalties that they're going to put on automakers if they don't change their fleet. And of course, you know, when I talk to people about electric cars, you know, the incentives, you know, the tax credit and the other incentives you get make it attractive to do it. So I think broadly, I don't, at least at this point, don't see the consumer demand there. I see government policy being a, a big driver of it, except, uh, but, you know, I think Tesla is a, a unique example of a creation of a brand by a, an amazing entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, Tesla really put the, put the EV on the map. I think you have a quote in the book uh, uh, from, from JB Straubel, who, who is the, the chief technology officer at Tesla for a number of years, where he said, you know, when we were starting this up, I mean, we were just making it because electric cars were cool. And then now, now there's been there's been all this push uh, because Tesla's popularized the electric car of the potential for this technology to, to really uh, make a significant dent in the global auto industry. It, yeah. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, J.V. Strobel. I mean, basically, I think he said that he sort of made a, an electric uh, sort of uh, golf cart when he was a kid. I mean, he was just obsessed with electric. And, you know, the story he told me is that he met with uh, with and with somebody else initially with uh, with uh, Elon Musk to talk about an electric airplane. And he said, I'm not interested in that. And they said, oh, and then JB said, well, I'll talk about what I'm interested in, electric cars. And, and Tesla said, I might be interested in that. And, and it, but it was an amazing job of not only technology, but willpower to make it happen. And he describes just how hard the innovating it was. And, you know, probably it couldn't have been done anywhere other than Silicon Valley in that ecosystem. Next to electric vehicles, uh, another technology on the arena of clean transportation that, that's really surged in interest over the past year or so has been hydrogen fuel cells, and the role of hydrogen in our energy infrastructure. 
this is this doesn't get a chapter in the book, but you do you do spend some time uh, discussing it. What role do you think hydrogen could play in the future of, of our energy infrastructure? Well, I think it's you know ten or twelve years ago, or maybe even more for that. There was this, all this hydrogen highway, and everybody was excited about it. Then it ended up the hydrogen highway went nowhere. And even four years ago, if you had said hydrogen, people would say, "Oh yeah, we've been there, done that." But I think now with this sort of post Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, hydrogen has really come back into the fore. And I think large companies as well as entrepreneurs are really working on it saying, um, I mean, it's possible fuel cells for cars, but also, you know, for heating and, uh, you know, and to kind of replace natural gas. And I think for the major oil companies are looking really hard at hydrogen. And of course, the skill set that they work with hydrogen already in refineries. So, you know, to turn it into at scale, a, a fuel source, I think is on the agenda. And I say that hydrogen could end up being 10% or more of our, uh, of our energy supply. And that's something that would just sort of sitting over there on the sidelines. Yeah, you mentioned the role uh, of traditional oil producers, how, how they have some expertise in the hydrogen arena. They could perhaps make some investments in that space. As you look at oil companies more broadly as oil demand is expected to fall over over the coming decades. What do you see as the future for those businesses? Can they pivot to new operations to, to be sustainable in the well, future? I, I think even even if oil demand just stays flat, you're going to need, uh, what's the number, $20 trillion of investment because you have to continue to replace the resources. So, so you know, even if it peaks now, uh, demand you know, it's going to continue to be a very big business. To, so I think that business is going to be there. Uh, but I think, you know, you have the various companies taking different strategies to saying, okay, well, we now live in the age of energy transition. How do we play in that? What are we going to do? What kind of pivot do we do? do and you have the European energy companies, oil and gas companies who are saying, well, actually, we're now energy companies. We're going into electricity. I see all of the, it's interesting for me, all the large companies are very interested in, uh, in startups and venture capital investing in early technologies that may be connected to their businesses or may not. Uh, so there's a sense of, you know, let us, you know, we want to, whatever the future is, we want to participate in it. But I think the different companies are going through different processes. But meanwhile, you know, the numbers in terms of meeting the needs of the market uh, you, you need a lot of oil and, and natural gas. Uh, what, what role do you think access to capital is playing in these companies transitioning more to becoming energy companies, moving more towards renewable? And, and how much is ESG investing, that trend driving uh, that for these companies? Well, I think that ESG, you know, ESG is quite different than it was two or three years ago. And I think it weighs very heavily on these companies. Uh, and you can see that their share prices are down, their share of, of, the, of, of the stock market is down. Uh, and so I think they have to think hard about that. It's, I think they have to sort out how much is that down is because returns have been bad over the last several years and how much is ESG. But I think all companies are, are seeing that they have to deal with ESG. We've created our, our, our company, IHS Market, what we call an ESG reporting repository to help companies systematize their reporting because they're asked for ESG from reporting from all different sorts. But that, you know, that relationship with investors, whether you're shale, whether you're a large oil company, uh, is now, uh, there's definitely, ESG is definitely part of that. 
Yeah, so I'll ask you a question here. You know, we're in this situation where we need to invest more money in exploration and production to, to be able to meet demand as, as our existing supplies uh, dissipate over time. However, the rise of ESG investing is limiting access to capital for companies who are doing those types of operations. If you were running uh, an oil and gas company today, what would be your approach to navigate uh, these obstacles? Um, there's, you know, there's not a single, if I can say that, a single map to do that. But you have to really be, I think what is important is return of capital to investors. I think that's the cul-de-sac that many shale producers ran into, that it was just growth at any cost rather than growth at one cost. So I think that's part of it is to make sure that there is a return uh, to investors. And then I think you have to demonstrate, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing about methane? What are you doing about water? Uh, how is uh, ES, you know, ESG criteria, you know, and so you have these sustainability reports now that these companies put out to show that, for instance, uh, in, a, uh, in an oil field, are you using uh, electricity from diesel or are you using electricity from solar to power your equipment? I mean, so those will be, you know, the kind of nitty gritty. So I think all companies are having to orient towards that to one degree or another. So as we kind of conclude here, the coronavirus has really thrown a wrench in the whole economy, uh, the energy markets, not the least of which. How has coronavirus changed the map for energy and geopolitics? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's demonstrated that how fragment, that we're in a more fragmented world, a more disruptive world. The fact that we haven't had international collaboration to really address this uh, is, if you think about it, is really very unfortunate. It's made it much more difficult. And I think it's a symptom of this kind of breakdown and call it globalization. Uh, and it's accentuated. And of course, it's accentuated the tensions between the US and China. I think another factor that people aren't thinking about so much is just what are going to be the impacts of these staggering levels of debt that governments have taken on to deal with this crisis? And how is that going to constrain what governments uh, do in the future? And then, of course, COVID is just, you know, how's it changed how we operate? You know, I have a line in the book, you know, imagine putting out newspapers with almost nobody in the newsroom. I mean, just the, the impact of digitalization uh, and that's going to be a lasting impact that's just going to continue. It's, you know, a lot of technologies, new technologies come out of war. In a sense, uh, digitalization was here, but it's been so accelerated by this crisis that, uh, you know, and you can see it in the value of, you know, of, of the relative stocks that you talk about, you know, what's, what's hot and what's not hot. And a lot of businesses will have to worry about whether they're going to be disintermediated by this, including the exercise industry. Indeed. One of the questions that I think a lot of people have asked with, with coronavirus, there's been a significant amount of government stimulus around the world, and there's been a push for, okay, we, we need to, to jumpstart the economy after coronavirus. Should we be investing large amounts of dollars in this energy transition? Do you think coronavirus, the coronavirus disruption ends up being an accelerant to energy transition or, or not? Well, that's, you know, that's a really big question. Does it... Uh, uh, speed the transition or does it slow it? I mean, people say, well, build back better. But then I say, well, what is it exactly you're going to invest in? I mean, charging stations, yes. What is it? But, you know, what are you going to do about small businesses that, you know, are still hanging by a thread? So we hear build back better, but I'd like to sort of parse down underneath the rhetoric to say, well, what does it really mean? Does it mean low cost loans to build, uh, you know, wind turbines? Uh, what is it? Is it, uh, is it going to be more heavily incentivized electric car purchases 
what does it mean when you get down to the details? And I think that there's going to, and I say in the conclusion that I think there'll be a clash between uh, environment ministers and finance ministers, that environment ministers will be wanting to push the transition and finance ministers will be saying, what's the, what's the fastest thing to get our economy back working again and get people working again? One of the last things before, before, before we wrap up, we opened up the show uh, early on talking about how the rise of U.S. shale changed the U.S.'s p- position uh, from a geopolitical point of view uh, with regard to energy. With, with the coronavirus, shale was already having some issues with access to capital, but, but with the effects of coronavirus on, on energy prices and, and you know, access to capital in that industry, there, there is some debate about how robust U.S. oil production could be going forward uh, from shale. What's your expectation about what the long-term future is of shale production in the yeah. U.S.? So I have, in that aspect of the map, I have a pretty clear view of the map. I mean, events could show me wrong, but I think that, you know, the U.S. reached a high point at 13 million barrels a day in February, just before we shut down the economy. Uh, I think at the end of the year, it'll be between 10 and 10 and a half million barrels a day. And kind of in that area going into 2021, and maybe a year from now, we'll start to see in responding to the markets, access to capital production starting to increase. But I don't think we're never, I don't think we're going to go back to that buoyant growth that we saw. I think that's history. I think we'll have, once we get back, we'll be kind of modest growth. But I think in the difference is that shale and that this, the story of the new map is that this incredibly disruptive technology, it's not disruptive anymore. It's here. It will stay here. It will be an important part of the market. And the U.S. will remain among the big three in producers, whether it'll be number one, number two, number three, time will tell. But it will be sort of, it, when growth comes back, it'll be at a much more modest level. Absolutely. So, so at the end of the day, the U.S. will have a seat at the table, even if it's not at the head of the table right, uh, exactly. in, the fu- in the future yeah. years. Okay. So last question for you. What's your biggest question about the future of energy today? Well, I mean, I probably have so many questions there. I suppose it is, in fact, how this energy transition actually plays out, the timing of it, and what technological surprises uh, will come along, or what surprises, you, you, you know, I've always been fascinated by, you know, who saw the financial crisis in 2008, who saw uh, COVID. What are the surprises here that will disrupt it? I guess I also worry about the geopolitical side of it. That uh, this more fragmented world, I think, uh, is a more dangerous is a more dangerous world. So that's something on my mind too. But I'm, uh, you know, I'm a believer in technology, and I'm an optimist. And uh, I think the U.S. is extremely well positioned to be at the forefront in terms of uh, creativity, in terms of addressing these questions. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Jurgen, thank you so much for taking the time thank with you. us today. Just a reminder to all the listeners, the book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. If you want to get up to speed on, on what's going on in energy markets today, I think you could do a lot worse than, than reading Mr. Jurgen's book and uh, getting a picture of the nature of energy today. Thank you. All right. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Daniel Jurgen, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.